Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. My name is Paul Coyer. I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, Today we are very privileged to have Sam Dogger. I'm assuming that many of you at least have already heard of him. Hopefully some of you have read his book. We have uh, copies of his book here. Rob, you've got one there. You can hold up some people to see, maybe. Um, <laughs> put them on the spot. Um, there's a bunch of them out there, and I'm sure Sam would be more than happy to sign them for you when, when we're done. Uh, this is the definitive book about the Syrian conflict, and this conflict that is has a lot of complex moving parts. It's difficult for someone who's not Syrian to understand. It's difficult for a lot of Syrians to understand. I was talking with my friend Hamdi all the way in from Leesburg, uh, an hour-long drive about this, and I'm still trying to get my head around it. Um, and, uh, and I actually know a little bit about this, so it's, uh, it, can be, it can be confusing. Um, Sam, as I've said, has written the definitive book that, that uh, really portrays all the moving parts in a way that are easy, uh, relatively easy to understand. Uh, it takes a while to get through. I've forgotten how many hundreds of pages it is. It's not. It's just 460 pages. Only 460, so it's not quite Kissingerian, but uh, it, it is long. Um, and uh, I would definitely recommend reading it. It, it like I said, is the definitive book. And uh, Sam is quite an accomplished journalist. He's been nominated for a Pulitzer. Uh, that doesn't happen every day. Um, and he spent a lot of time, when you read the book, you're impressed by how much research went into it, how many personal relationships he built with key actors over several different years. Uh, so he's not writing this as an academic who sort of read about it in a few books. He's uh, writing about this from the point of view of a lot of experience with knowledge of the actors, knowledge of the dynamics, and uh, we couldn't have a better speaker to help understand a situation that has been a lot in the news in the last two weeks. Um, A brief bit about the Institute of World Politics. For those of you that are not familiar with us, we're a graduate school. A lot of people assume that we are a think tank. Uh, We do a lot of thinking here, but we are a graduate school. So we have several master's degrees in uh, statecraft and foreign policy and various areas. Uh, A fairly new doctoral program that we uh, just started. Uh, Larry Cosgrove back here, our executive vice president. If you want to talk to him about any of those degree programs, feel free to do that as well. Um, Sam, to give you a little bit of bio about him, aside from the praise I've just ladled on him, which he fully deserves, he was a senior correspondent for the Wall Street Journal for a number of years focused on uh, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. I'm sure some of you have read his writings in, those, uh, in, in the journal. Worked in the Middle East for more than 12 years. He reported from inside Syria for more than two and was the only Western correspondent working and living in Damascus full time. Uh, between June 2013 and August 2014. Um, The book is about how the Assad regime has stayed in power over a number of years, uh, a number of years meaning a number of decades, since the early 60s. And he actually traces them from the very beginning of Bashar al-Assad's career. His partnership with a a family that you'll read about in the book that continued on and was inherited by the son. Uh, In August of 2012, the regime banned Sam from entering Syria. Uh, That's a mark in his favor, in my view. In October of 2014, he was able to enter the Kurdish-controlled part of the country in the Northeast, where he reported on how the Kurds were battling the Islamic State in order to establish their own self-rule area. Uh, That's that's what you've been reading about in the news recently. 
Uh, his work, as I've already said, from series been nominated with a journal for Pulitzer and other journalism awards. Uh, again, we're privileged to have Sam with us today. Please join me in welcoming Sam Dogger. Thank you, uh, Paul, for, for that introduction <laughs> and uh, your kind words. And, uh, and thank you to the Institute of World Politics, the faculty, the, the students, uh, all the guests here today. Thank you for making the time. I was just correct one thing. I, I was actually kicked out of Syria in 2014. Uh, uh, so maybe there was a mistake there. Uh, but anyway. August uh, 2014? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what it has. Maybe I said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I heard 2012. But anyway, I mean, that's when I went, went in. I went in yeah. in 2012. But anyway, right. it's, it's fine. Thank you very much for that introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you again for hosting me. So, uh, I mean, so much to, to unpack here, uh, particularly in um, light of uh, all the, the events that have been taking place in and around Syria the past few days and weeks. Um, I mean, I could start with the most recent events and how they're relevant to the book's uh, central theme. Um, basically, it's how this uh, brutal Assad regime has managed to survive for 50 years. It has outlasted uh, eight U.S. Uh, presidents since Richard Nixon. Uh, and basically their motto is either they stay in power or the country or even the world uh, burns and is engulfed in extremism and, and chaos. Uh, in fact, that's the motto of the family. And it's the book's title is Assad or We Burn the Country. It's not something I came up with. It's the graffiti that um, loyalists spray on the walls look here, it's in Arabic. And uh, basically these are um, communities that rose up against the regime. Um, they were surrounded, uh, punished in every way imaginable, uh, uh, deprived of food, of medicine, bombed day and night until they capitulated, which meant people either dying or fleeing. And then uh, the regime and its uh, militias enter into these deserted and destroyed uh, uh, towns and neighborhoods. And uh, whatever is left standing, they go in and uh, loot uh, all the contents of the apartments uh, down to the copper wire that's in the walls. And then they set these places on fire and they spray this graffiti on the walls um, of, of these buildings. And it's basically uh, either they stay or the country uh, suffers. And th th this really is um, almost the guiding principle in the way the regime has dealt with both external and internal threats. Um, externally, it, it, over the decades, it has been sponsoring terrorism. It is on the U.S. Uh, list of state sponsors of terrorism since that list was created in 1979. I mean, just ponder that for a second. So basically they sponsor terrorism and then they turn to the U.S. and to the Europeans and say, we can help you with that problem, but we need, we need X, Y, and Z from you. And we've always uh, played that game I mean, since the days of the father until now. And with the people, with their own people, it, uh, it's, it's showing no mercy at all, uh, absolutely no mercy. And um, they even have a playbook on how to deal with their own people. The, there was an uprising against the father. A few people maybe remember that in the 70s and 80s, um, it, was, it was pretty much the same thing. I mean, uh, you had uh, a, a kind of a, a broad cross-section of the population, students, uh, 
professors, uh, lawyers, engineers, actors, you name it, rising up against that tyranny that had been in place for seven years. This was like 77, seven years after the father had taken power. And they rose up, and the same thing, there was also an Islamist insurgency, but for Hafez al-Assad, uh, everybody was a terrorist, whether you were a peaceful protester or an Islamist insurgent. And tens of thousands of people were killed, and the same thing happened under the sun, so it's the same playbook. And in both instances, unfortunately, we just looked away. And... And we even, in some instances, came up with justifications for the regime, unfortunately. I mean, some, some countries did. Uh, turning now to the news of, of, of the past couple of days, Abu, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, I can tell you, Baghdadi is the product of these uh, tyrannical and corrupt uh, failed states uh, that have caused uh, their people so much misery and, and, and suffering over the years. He's the product of the regime next door in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Um, the U.S. invades, uh, topples uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, and commits, the U.S. commits one catastrophic blunder after another. And in a way, the U.S. supports and defends a, a corrupt and dysfunctional and deeply sectarian system that takes hold after the invasion uh, under the pretext that we're actually bringing democracy to Iraq. I mean, can you imagine that? We're like saying this is, this is the, the new system that's, that's, that we're bequeathing to Iraq, but it's a system that's really flawed from the get-go, and, and we're defending it over the years. So the chaos and sectarian conflict and the ineptitude of, of, of the U.S.-backed government that's actually complicit in the carnage that, uh, that takes place in Iraq provides the perfect setting for Al-Qaeda to establish its franchise in Iraq and for people like Baghdadi to, to rise up. Uh, and so Baghdadi rises up. We, uh, during that period, 2007 onward, we, we launch a, a very successful counterinsurgency. We, we partner with the Sunni tribes uh, to tamp down the insurgency. Uh, it works. Actually, Iraq is, is calmer, less people are killed, but we never resolve the underlying causes of the problem and its deep roots. And we leave because just like now, we say that our mission is finished and we don't want to be involved in endless wars in the Middle East. Uh, we also provide this, we use even the same simplistic language. Uh, these people have been fighting each other for centuries. It's not our problem. Let them do it. So we just walk away. Uh, back then, 2010-2011, Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, was, was by then called the Islamic State of Iraq. This is 2010-2011. It is actually reinvigorated and uh, tolerated and supported by uh, Sunni towns that see it as the only defense against uh, uh, the Shia-dominated and Iraq-backed government in Baghdad. Um, this is happening in Iraq. Um, so this is happening in Iraq, uh, next door to Syria, and uh, and in Syria itself, you have a regime um, that's been sponsoring terrorism for decades. In fact, as I just said, using it as as a bargaining chip in dealings with the U.S. and uh, and its European allies. So, um, 
I mean, I'll give you an example. In the decade after the Iraq invasion, uh, Bashar, thinking that he was going to be next after Saddam Hussein, um, sends jihadists to Iraq. Uh, a lot has been written about this. I mean, I'm not like revealing something here for the first time. Um, and we have people in the room who, who remember that. So he, he's uh, basically the jihadists are coming from everywhere, from Europe, from North Africa, arriving in Damascus. His intelligence services are driving them to the border and telling them Iraq is over there. Uh, you need to kill the American infidels, uh, which means U.S. troops and, and the Iraqis that are cooperating with them. Uh, he sets up uh, training camps on the border between Iraq and Syria. Uh, jihadists are trained there. We know all of this, actually. I mean, all of this we know already, and, and reports have been written about this. So I'm not, again, revealing anything new. So uh, Americans and Iraqis are killed. Uh, and then uh, in the lead-up to Obama's first uh, administration, we strike a bargain with the regime. I mean, the same way we've been striking bargains with this, with this regime and other re regimes in the Middle East. And we say, uh, I, I mean, I'll... I don't want to just put all the blame on Obama. I mean, there was something called the Iraq Study Group, if you remember, that came out with a report in 2006, and one of the main recommendations was we needed to engage with the Syrian regime and with Iran. So we then um, reach a, a, a bargain with him, stop sending the suicide bombers to Iraq, we won't do anything to threaten your regime, and we will even start um, uh, removing some of the sanctions that have been imposed on the regime, and then treat him like you know, a normal leader. And uh, so we have U.S. officials meeting with him, uh, Foreign Relations uh, Committee, uh, uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, Chairman uh, John Kerry at the time met with him at least five times. Nancy Pelosi was there in 2007. So we're actually, like, really engaging with Bashar al-Assad. And then the uprising begins. Um, and what does he do? I mean, he wanted to poison the revolution from the beginning. So he's... Uh, massacring peaceful protesters from day one, day after day, month after month. People are being killed. Um, they feel abandoned. The bloodshed widens. Uh, same scenario as in Iraq. People see groups like the Nusra Front, which is by then had emerged in Syria and is the affiliate of both the Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Qaeda. I mean, you just had at the beginning just one body called the Nusra Front. So people who feel abandoned by, every, by whole, the whole world look to these organizations as the only ones defending them and, and really carrying out attacks against the regime and people collaborating with the regime. And then the one important thing that Bashar al-Assad did at the beginning of the uprising, a, a month into it, he released all the people he had put in prison. So I, I, go, I mean, I, I know it's all complicated, but under like the deal he had with the Americans, he started arresting all the jihadists that were coming back to um, to Syria from Iraq and putting them in prison and, and, and basically holding this up as proof of his cooperation with the United States. So the, the, the beginning of the peaceful uprising, he releases thousands of these people from prison. They go and actually uh, reactivate a lot of the Al-Qaeda cells that had been dormant you know, during the, the years that he was cooperating with the Americans. And uh, ISIS um, then uh, emerges in 2003. 13, because you know it breaks away from Al Qaeda, um, the regime does everything to facilitate uh, the rise of ISIS. Uh, just so, can... so basically, um, the regime pretty much abandons this whole area. This is Iraq. So this is uh, Syria, 
and the regime ab abandons all these like mostly desert provinces, Al Hasaka, Rafadil, Zor, and just says, you know, I don't care if um, you know ISIS takes them over, and he does zero to confront ISIS. Uh, so he's basically almost enabling them to take over these places. And then the caliphate is declared in 2014. Um, and, uh, sorry, just. Sorry, one second. So the, the caliphate is, is declared in uh, 2014. Uh, we go in and say we only f want to uh, fight ISIS, and uh, obviously, you know, the beheadings, uh, the, the, the gruesome atrocities that ISIS commits, the attacks on Europe, um, we effectively ch choose Bashar as the lesser of, of, of the two evils, forgetting that he is actually the driver of this terrorism in the first place, and that this terrorism is actually part of the DNA of this regime, and others like it. And uh, I mean, just to give you an idea, the, the, uh, ISIS almost like uses the same language as the regime, as the Baathist regimes of Iraq and Syria, exactly the same language, the same phraseology, uh, but just in, in, in an is Islamist context. But it's, it's kind of like exactly sometimes the same terminology. Uh, they have intelligence services, uh, ISIS, that are the, the exact replicas of the Mukhabarat, the intelligence services of Saddam Hussein and the Assad regime. Their methods are the same. The torture methods are the same. Even they, they, they do Bashar the greatest service because what they go after the peaceful activists first. They had lists of names. How do they get these lists of all the activists? I mean, I, in the book, um, one of the characters, uh, a young girl from southern uh, Syria who took part in the protests and then took part in um, some of the efforts to uh, to run what, what Syrians call liberated areas in southern Syria. And then she gave up in 2015 when Russia intervened. Um, she was she was escaping to Turkey uh, and, and she was held by her and her husband were held for for a while by by ISIS. And she said to me, I mean, they had lists with all the names of all the activists. Like, who supplied them with the list? I mean, they were doing the regime's dirty work, basically. So now, you know, we're saying, um, you know, the job is finished. Um, and, and that uh, let the Russians and the Turks and the Iranians figure it out. That's where we are today. Uh, Turkey goes in under the, the, the pretext of, of, of establishing the safe uh, haven, the safe zone. But in effect, it is a gift to, to the Russians and the regime, giving them immense leverage over the outcome of all of this. Um, now we're saying we actually want to guard the oil and, and that we want to keep a few hundred troops to guard the oil. Guess what? The, the YPG, the, the militia that we had partnered with, has, has been supplying oil to the Syrian regime. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it is an incredibly crazy situation. I mean, uh, so now we're saying uh, we're, we're there to guard the oil. So I have to tell you, I mean, I think we have a very confused policy right now. Um, whimsical, maybe, is, is another way of describing it. I don't know. I mean, but, but really uh, confused. I think we also suffer, on, uh, suffer from amnesia on, on, a, on a grand scale. 
I mean, everything I've described to you is, is actually documented. And uh, we have experts and we have the institutional knowledge from Iraq. Uh, we know what you know, the, the Syrian regime did in Iraq. We have all that information. Um, nobody seems to want to uh, look at that history. Nobody seems to want to learn from that history. I mean, I, I often wonder, I'm sure you can provide maybe a better answer, if it's because this is how the system is configured and that some, somehow the system moves very slowly, or sometimes I wonder if it's even intentional, but I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know what to say. And uh, we say we actually want to prevent a resurgence of ISIS, and we all want to do that. I mean, we all share that goal, but we never speak. I, I mean, the past few days, I've never heard once anyone on the radio or TV um, speak about the root causes of, of, uh, of ISIS, uh, which are actually even the, the, the dynamics of this are actually playing out in front of our eyes right now. I mean, I'll take you back to the map of the region. So, you know, as we speak, as we're like cheering the, the, the death of Baghdadi, uh, Iraq is, is in the midst of, of, of protests. Uh, Sunnis, Shia, Kurds, Arabs on the streets protesting this government uh, that's in place, this dysfunctional, sectarian, corrupt government that we're saying, that we're actually backing. We're saying this is now our, the best bet for Iraq. Yeah, we know it's a bad government, but the alternative is ISIS, so we might as well just back this government. So we're almost like the conditions in Iraq, I mean, because the, the government is like shooting and killing people, uh, the conditions on the ground are being set for ISIS 2.0, I mean, as we speak right now in Iraq. In Lebanon, we're giving money to a government that's in place, that's also sectarian, dysfunctional, and corrupt, and we're saying uh, it's our best bet to keep the refugees, the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, make sure they don't, you know, you know go to, uh, to Europe. And Lebanon is also in the midst of protests, uh, a million people, a million plus people on the street. Uh, the, the, the faction that now controls the government, uh, Hezbollah and uh, its allies, have threatened, uh, you know, Today, I mean, they've attacked, some of their thugs have attacked uh, uh, a camp in downtown Beirut where protesters had set up tents. Just now, I mean, a few hours ago, they attacked, they broke up the, the tents, but people went back. So people are really determined. In Egypt, we're saying uh, Sisi is our partner to fight terrorism. But guess what? His crackdown on his own people. Uh, just recently, people protested. I mean, he rounded up 3,000 people. Uh, people are telling me he's worse than Mubarak, and we're just kind of like turning away and saying, well, he's our best bet, you know. There's no alternative at this point. Uh, I know Saudi Arabia is a hugely important ally of ours, and, and of course it's a very important relationship, but we also must listen to the Saudi people and what they want. And they, they are in the midst of their own Arab Spring, believe it or not, and we're saying zero about that and paying zero attention to that. We're totally oblivious to the fact that actually we're in the midst of a of a second Arab Spring now. I mean, we saw what happened in Algeria and Sudan earlier. Again, we're paying zero attention to that. And and guess what? The, the second wave will come back to Syria. Believe me, the second wave of protests will come back. And we're totally, unfortunately, tone deaf. We're saying the solution is uh, the Constitutional Committee that under the guise of the UN, um, the regime and elements of the opposition who hardly represent you know, the Syrian people are going to sit down and draft a new constitution, the perfect gift to Bashar al-Assad to string everybody along and then to 
run for elections again in 2021. And we're saying that's the solution. We're saying perhaps the solution is the Russians uh, cutting deals with everyone. Uh, but guess what? I mean, if uh, I feel, you know, we're saying we're walking away from Syria, but we will have to go back there. Uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I think the threats of a, of a regional war encompassing Syria have never been higher. Russia is expanding its military bases in Syria, uh, looking to reap rewards of its military involvement. Uh, and Iran and its proxies are entrenched. Um, Syria and Lebanon and Iraq are, 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 are a crucial part of the, uh, you know, Iran's regional strategy. Israel, America's ally, is bombing Iran inside Syria. Any mistake could lead, out, lead to a, a regional uh, conflict that would necessitate U.S. involvement on, on an even you know, more significant scale. Uh, Turkey, a NATO member, uh, uh, is moving closer to Russia, invaded north, northern Syria to carve out you know, its own zone of influence. Uh, the Kurdish groups, uh, you know, to prevent the Kurdish groups from having their autonomous zone. Guess what? The situation is very explosive as well. The PKK maybe will decide to reactivate its insurgency against Turkey, and we will have to get involved some way or another. Uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE are confronting Iran regionally, and Syria, Lebanon, all these other countries are the arenas of this conflict. So it's really a tinderbox, and we're just walking away and saying it doesn't concern us, but my fear is we'll have to go back. And we're also ignoring, you know, by saying that the solution is, you know, let's just, uh, we're ignoring all of this. We're saying basically to anyone, any strong man out there, you can do whatever you want. Nobody's going to punish you. So basically, more than, more than half a million killed since 2011. The, the vast majority at the hands of the regime. The UN stopped counting in 2016. Tens of thousands of Syrians languishing in regime torture dungeons forever disappeared with no trace. Uh, six million Syrians in neighboring states like Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, um, another 1.1 million um, in Europe and the rest of the world. So a total of 7.1 million Syrians, a third of the population, are outside the, their country. So imagine if 110 million Americans uh, went to Canada and Mexico. I mean, it's something comparable to that. Uh, millions more displaced inside Syria, destroyed country that's going to take 250 to uh, $400 billion to re rebuild, a fractured society. And we're saying, okay, forget about all of that. And, Let's just uh, draft a new constitution. So what, what message is that sending to strong men elsewhere? So uh, I think we really, if, if we are concerned about ISIS, if we are concerned about the refugees, we must rethink our whole strategy. We have to end you know, this piecemeal approach to the Middle East saying, you know, it's just ISIS, or it's just the refugees, or it's just whatever it is, just a small box of issues that we have to deal with. You know, we have to come up with, I mean, some of the solutions in Syria, I mean, we, I just mentioned, we have to end this peaceful approach. The problem is interconnected, has deep roots. This is, this applies to Syria and the whole region. Uh, the Syrian refugees, a lot of them actually want to go back home, the, the 7.1 million I just mentioned, but they won't go back as long as Assad is in power. Uh, I think, as I said, framing the conflict as a, as a constitutional and political crisis is a complete cop-out. Um, we're saying zero about justice and accountability. We, I mean, our government is saying zero about that, holding him accountable for his war crimes. 
uh, it, it's, it's, the task is left to Syrian activists in Europe to, to basically uh, file cases against the, the regime in German courts uh, because Germany uh, recognizes you know, the principle of universal jurisdiction. So all of this is happening, and, and, and the Arab Spring, as, as I said, is not finished. We need to be engaging with the youth of the Middle East, both inside the region and in the diaspora. We're doing none of that. So really, it's, uh, you know, seems to be a very bleak uh, picture at the moment. So with that, I think I better stop and, <laughs> and open it up to questions. Thank you. We can start with questions, and uh, we've got quite a bit of time to, to ask them. So, okay. Question on uh, Jordan's involvement. I know they've been involved along with a lot of the other Arab partners and whatnot, but shouldn't they take a more <laughs> active role maybe in, in what's going on and maybe putting an end to Assad? And would it be in the king's interest? Hmm. Uh, I, I think it's a very complicated issue with the Jordanians because they do share a, a you know, border... Uh, with Syria, they've always maintained uh, ties with, e even at the height of the, you know, the, of, of the revolution, what the Syrians call the revolution. I mean, the, the Jordanians never severed, uh, you know, some of the links that they have, mainly through the military and the intelligence services. But they with, felt, with yeah, yeah, Assad, okay. yes, yes, okay. absolutely. They, they never, they never severed the ties. Dis but they were under a lot of pressure from Saudi Arabia, which is like almost their main benefactor, right. to say, you know, we need to open this um, command uh, center in Amman that coordinates all the um, support for the rebels, be it financial or military. So almost um, like under pressure, under, <laughs> under duress, that they, they agreed to that. They would have rather prefer, preferred to stay neutral. So... So when you saw the, 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 the Russians intervene directly and, and the Russians become like the main player in, in, in the conflict, the Jordanians were the first to rush and say, okay, we're working with the Russians now. And the Americans were saying, okay, because the Americans were saying that pretty much the Russians are the only game in town. Even the Europeans, uh, uh, I remember like one of my, one of the characters in the book, Mazin Darwish, an activist lawyer, he went to, uh, to Berlin and actually met with Merkel. He was among a few Syrians that met with Merkel. She says, and, and this Germany's hosting almost a million series. And she tells them, I, have, I can do nothing for you. You have to go and meet Putin. So it's in that context. So, so the Jordanians immediately like jumped on that sort of bandwagon and started engaging with, with the Russians. Got you. Thank you. Well, you mentioned the underlying problems. What are the underlying problems? How do we address it? And how do we engage with the news? I yeah. It, yeah. As, as we said, it's been going on for 50 years or longer with some of the fighting. What do you do? Sure. I mean, the underlying what problem. Sure. I mean, the tyranny, number one. What's the, the steps? That, that yeah, you the, want the, the U.S. Yeah. to take steps? I, what steps? Not, I'm not calling for military intervention. I'm, not call, I'm calling for the U.S. to take a clear position. Okay. We seem to be all over the place. We're confused. We actually don't know what we want. So the first step is actually a clear position to say that actually we stand with the people of the region. We stand with the youth that are protesting everywhere. We stand with the aspirations of the youth of the region in every country, including Syria. <clears throat> Just that we're not doing. I mean, even that we're not. We, we don't have. We're not articulating a clear position. E even the things that we say we want are, are, are. I mean, we're like all over the place. 
we're in one day, we're out the other day, it's about the oil, it's about the courage, it's about who knows what. So we're totally confused. And this is like the greatest gift to the Russians because everybody's looking to Putin now as you know, the kingmaker, the power broker, not just in Syria and the, re the whole region. So I was saying the first step is for us to really articulate a clear position, what we want. If I might ask on that, once someone states a clear position, and, as, and, and Obama fell into this, the red line, once you state the, a clear position, you're going to get criticized because the people there, let's say you, the clear position is we're out of here and we don't care. You don't incentivize people to rise up against their governments, which is contrary to our, you know, the last 150 years of our politics. But if you say we're with the youth, we're with democratic representative uh, governments, you're incentivizing them, and then when they're slaughtered in the streets by the dictators, the United States government is going to be criticized. Be it, I mean, this is exactly what the U.S. faced as far back in my memory as sure. the Hungarian Re Revolution wow. in '56. Oh wow! And that it won't, and that's when, you know, Eisenhower said, "I'm not giving any incentive to people to stand up against the Russian tanks." because I'm not willing to put American tanks into Hungary. The same thing that happens over and over and over when you say we ought to state a clear position. But I can only suspect that we'll not be, we're out of here, and never will come back. So what, what, sure. what do you think the, the, the be it, when I say the U.S. could also be our NATO allies. Some of them might be willing to assist uh, some revolutionary government, but are they really going to do that? I don't know if I've yeah, no, no, myself, I mean, it's the horns of the dilemma. Sure, no, no, very, very valid point, and I mean, very crucial point that you raised. But I, I would just say one thing. There's a huge difference between uh, a Soviet-controlled Hungary in 1956 and all these Middle Eastern states that are actually one way or another, even with Russia's involvement, rely on us, rely on the U.S. We have a lot of leverage over a lot of these countries. We have leverage over Egypt in one way or another. We have leverage over, we have leverage in Lebanon. We have, believe it or not, even leverage in Syria. We have a le leverage in, in Iraq. I mean, we're backing this government. Mm -hmm. We're saying this is the government that we want. And this government is, is actually on the streets slaughtering people and we're saying nothing. I, yeah. I'm not the expert. Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but I'm, I'm just telling you, like, we actually do have leverage. We are supporting the Iraqi government. We give this government money. We have the largest embassy in the world in Baghdad. So, and on the streets of Baghdad, uh, you know, now like almost 300 people have been killed, and we're saying nothing about that. And this is in a country where we actually have, have, a, have presence, have leverage, and we're doing nothing. I know nothing about Syria, so I'm going to ask something that half the people here already know the answer. But in the news recently, have been the control of these oil fields. You know, where are the oil fields on one of these maps, if you don't mind? Sure. Yeah. And and why is Syria basically? You mentioned earlier that they were quite willing to have uh, was it ISIS uh, controlling them. 
Uh, not quite, but I'll, I'll explain. Okay, yeah. thank sure. you. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, Syria is not like a major oil, oil producer. I mean, we're talking about 380,000 barrels a day, so this is like, like medium size, even, not even medium size, right? And, and most of the, um, the oil fields are here along the Iraqi border in a province called Deir Azor, and in Hasake, a bit here. So, this area basically bordering Iraq. I mean, Hasake has also a a refinery and maybe is there a refinery uh, besides the one in Hasake? I mean, uh, Assam, uh, you, you might know, right? <laughs> yeah, Reylan. But is, there, is there another one? There's no refinery. Oh, oh, there's in Baniyas on the coast, right? Right, exactly. So there are only like two refineries. The other one is here on the coast. coast. Exactly. So, so as you can see, like it's not a Syria is like not a major oil producer, but there are like. Uh, uh, it's harder to extract the reserves. I mean, it just takes it's more work to get to get the reserves out, but there are there. And even the French were very much interested in, in that, like 2007-8. This was during the period when we re-engaged with Bashar, and the French were re-engaging, and we were re-engaging. And the French, as usual, were like the first to rush in to try to, you know, get some business deals. And, and the Total signed like this strategic agreement with Syria at the time, with Syrian regime. And so, um, what happened uh, with the oil? I mean, he Bashar here in the northeast in 2012, where the refinery is uh, an important refinery. He reached a deal with the Kurds, so he did not abandon it to ISIS. What What happened is he told the Kurds, and this deal was re was reached uh, um, under the auspices of Iran uh, and uh, one of our allies in Iraq. The, the Patriotic uh, Union of Kurdistan Party of Jalal Talabani, the president of Iraq. So these are our allies helping broker a deal between Iran, the Syrian regime, and the YPG, uh, the Kurdish uh, arm of the PKK, to take over this area, basically to police the area. And under the deal, the regime continued to this day, to this day, at, even as the U.S. partnered with the Kurds to fight ISIS, to maintain. Uh, you know, presence in the provincial capital here, and also in, in Kamishli, the main city, and to control the airport. So, and under the deal, the oil was actually flowing to the regime or to regime middlemen from the Kurd, the Kurds. I mean, I was I was there in two thousand. I mean, Paul, you mentioned it. I was there in in October two thousand fourteen. I met. I went to the refinery and I spoke to the people in charge and said, "Yes, I mean, how, how are we going to pay salaries of the people here? We have to sell the oil, so we're selling it to Assad." So this, this is in 2014. So the, the ones that ISIS took are mainly here. This uh, ISIS and the other groups are mainly there is Zor, and then and then uh, and the reason um, ISIS got into this big fight with the Kurds was basically over the control of the oil primarily because they wanted they wanted the oil that the, the oil uh, fields and the refinery that uh, the Kurds controlled, and that was the one of the main reasons that they started fighting. And then we stepped in. And we said we're going to side, uh, you know, with, we're going to enlist the help of the YPG to fight uh, ISIS. So, and that's where we are now. Hello. Um, I'm Carol Castillo. I look forward to oh, seeing you tomorrow. Thank you for the excellent summary. But I wanted to go back um, because I think maybe you might have skipped over a few important points. The question is, was there a point between 2011 and let's say the 2017-18 uh, 
2013, when the United States, the Obama administration, could have acted in a decisive manner, they could have changed the um, the direction of the conflict. And let me just uh, give a, a comment. It's been said that President Obama overlearned Iraq. In other words, you know, he did the opposite. He, you know, George W. Bush went too far and acted when he may, may not shouldn't have acted, perhaps. And Obama decided he wants to pull back, and that was kind of the, a governing philosophy. Even though many advisors, as you know, uh, Panetta, Clinton, and Petraeus said, you know, 2012, let's we got to go there, and you know they're on the ropes. We can help with our allies supporting the interim government, you know, the Free Syria Army and the civilians, but we didn't. And some of us know, I'm sure you know, that the Iran deal was in the works. Some analysts say, perhaps, you know. Obama didn't want to interfere or any way, in any way uh, nix the deal with Iran, and he thought maybe, again, um, speculation that if they had done anything like bombed the air, the air strips of Bashar al-Assad in 2013, that that would have jeopardized the Iran deal, which is probably a misreading of how the Iranians negotiate. But what is could we have done something in 2012? And I'm not talking about these half-hearted. You know, CIA efforts and, and, and the Defense Department that were arming, you know, some of the Free Syria Army that then got out of control. But something like Qusair, when you're right before Qusair, right before Hezbollah came in, you know, what do you think we could have done if their political will had been there? Don't forget, the French had their jets ready to bomb the smithereens out of Bashar al-Assad's, you know, air airstrip. And I understand, I was told by a Syrian expert, Charles Lister, who said, you know, some of the regime uh, cronies and, and butchers, you know, have their bags packed. Again, yeah. just from your perspective, if we, it's a historical if, could we have done something differently that could have changed this, uh, the trajectory of this terrible conflict? Okay, thank you very much, Carol, for your question. I, I, and I look forward to, to speaking with, sitting, sitting down with you tomorrow. Um, I'm gonna actually focus on 2011, 2012, and uh, tell you what we could have done in those two years. So in 2011, when the uprising started, and this was a 100% peaceful uprising, even in Dara in the south, people at, one, at the beginning were against chanting for the toppling of the regime, if you believe it. They were chanting, we, we could hear chants, people want to reform the regime. I mean, just go back to the videos. Those were the chants. But from day one, I mean, the family realized this was... Uh, because they had been used to this in the 70s and 80s, I mean, the father had written the manual on how to crush these, uh, th these types of challenges. They felt they needed to scare people off the streets immediately. So how do you do that? You shoot and kill and you actually demonstrate the high price of, of defiance. So you reestablish that fear barrier. But the problem is people had sort of breached that uh, fear barrier. They were, seeing, they were seeing what was going on elsewhere in Egypt and Tunisia and the rest of the Arab world, and people were not going to stop. And they were being butchered day after day, week after week. And if you remember in the beginning, our response was pretty shy. Like, uh, I don't think we even condemned until like a month or so into it, or even, or even around, around a month into it. And, and we were hoping that our allies, mainly Turkey and Qatar, would talk some sense into Bashar. And we sent uh, basically uh, emissaries, I mean, the uh, Turkish foreign minister was there, we, we even proposed to Bashar al-Assad, like, you can, uh, why don't you 
uh, like uh, announce like major reforms and uh, and, and then we're, we're actually going to support you and, and, and if you, you can even run in any presidential elections that take place and you may even win. So, I mean, that's the type of conversation that was taking place. They even had names of people that he could uh, have as prime minister, as defense minister. But the problem is, you know, the family was just killing day after day and that, and that circle of, of, of bloodshed, of vengeance was widening. Um, so we could have done, for instance, in 2011, uh, in the summer of 2011, um, there had been attempts for like uh, weeks before that uh, by pro brave protesters in, in the capital, in Damascus, in Homs, uh, uh, the third largest city of Syria, to occupy a square. They wanted a square just like Tahrir Square, where, where like uh, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people would converge and protest, and they felt that there would be strength in numbers, that if they had occupied those, the square, um, the regime wouldn't shoot and kill them. And, uh, of course, it didn't work that way. I mean, every attempt in Damascus ended in absolute carnage in April and in Homs as well. But then protesters in, in a city called Hama, which is the same city that the father had massacred in 1982 and killed ten tens of thousands of people. Hama is right here. Uh, it's north of Homs. They were actually, they managed to occupy a square. And um, our ambassador at the time, Robert Ford, visited them. And uh, I mean, the scene was incredible. They even g gave him roses and the French ambassador was there. And we thought, they thought, that this would actually be protection. That this uh, was almost like the U.S. saying to Bashar, like, watch out. You know, we went and, and we, we saw the protests. The protests are real. Don't you dare, uh, you know, attack them. And he does. And uh, he kills uh, hundreds of people. The President Obama comes out immediately afterwards and says he has to go, but that's it. And then fast forward 2012, uh, by then, you know, it's a, it's, it's a conflict, it's a wider conflict. Uh, Bashar wants to attack one neighborhood in Homs that had become an emblem of the, of the, of the revolution, Baba Amr. And uh, President Obama comes out and says, we will not allow you to do that, we will not allow you to uh, uh, do the same thing that your your father did because Bashar was launching the offensive on the 30th anniversary of the Hama massacre of 1982 against this uh, this neighborhood. Um, so he kills hundreds of people, including a, a U.S. reporter, Marie Colvin, who was in there, targeted directly by the regime, uh, along with a French photographer, Remy Oshlik. They pay the ultimate price. We do nothing, and then by then. The, the Obama administration's approach was, if, if to, I mean, to our, to, the, to our allies in the region, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey, was like, if you want to get rid of them so badly, you, you, you're going to have to do the job. We're not going to get involved. So, and I think that was probably the worst decision ever made, and I think not enough attention is, 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 is focused on that. I'll tell you why, because these countries had different agendas from the beginning. The, the Qataris and the Turks saw the Arab Spring as an opportunity for them to go in and bring their Muslim Brotherhood allies to power. The Saudis were terrified. They wanted to crush these uprisings. So basically, these allies that were supposed to be working together were undermining each other. So every time the Qataris and Turks would create a new opposition body and everything seemed to be moving on the right track, the Saudis would come in and offer people more money, more weapons, and say, come to us. So. I think that that's where we failed, and, and we, we're not talking about that at all. I mean, I, I barely hear anything about that in terms of how we 
abandoned this responsibility and just allowed these countries to take over that uh, that whole endeavor. And then also, uh, I think we could have, I mean, going back to, uh, to your question, Carol, in terms of what we, we could have done, we could have definitely had some sort of a, a, a safe zone in northern Syria. I mean, this is what Turkey wants to create now. And at the time, I mean, we're talking about this, this area here, uh, it would have simply saved lives because uh, it would have given people the chance to stay inside Syria without having the regime planes drop bombs on them day and night. I mean, that, that was the thing that was killing people the most. Uh, I mean, imagine you're, you're like sitting here and suddenly a barrel bomb is dropped on you and and everybody's like under the rubble. I mean, that was that, that was the thing that was killing people the most. And we, if we had just provided that sort of respite for people to, 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 to just from, from these bombs that were dropping on their heads, I think it would have saved a lot of lives and in the beginning maybe stemmed uh, the tide of refugees and allowed people to demonstrate that they can actually run their own affairs without Assad. And I think everybody was in, on board. The Turks were on board, the French were on board, the Germans were on board. Everybody, including also key members of the Obama administration, uh, Panetta, the defense secretary at the time, Clinton, um, Petraeus, CIA. I mean, everybody was saying this is doable, and this will not have this will not involve uh, you know a full on uh, invasion or intervention uh, uh, on the scale of Iraq. And I, I think it would have been doable. So why didn't um, Obama give insurgents the air missiles and they could have had their own free zone in the north? If they could, you say that the problem was barrel bombs that that the yeah. that the Syrian government was dropping. Why didn't we give insurgents the air missiles to cut off the air support? <coughs> wouldn't that have the Russians? Wouldn't that warn the Russians don't go to Syria and provide support to Assad? The air support that yeah. they're providing now. I think that that's probably a more complex decision because we're always worried about these uh, missiles falling into the wrong hands. And we we're too worried about that. Yeah. And, and why don't you put put a device on the missile that, that cuts yeah. it off after 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 a month it doesn't work anymore? Can't you put a timer on? Couldn't we have done that? I'm not a I'm not an expert, but I tell you, I mean, the, our our greatest concern was right. Uh, these, you know, missiles falling into the wrong hands. And by then there were many groups. I mean, it was a valid concern, by the way, because by then you had Nusra, you had all these other groups, you had all these extremist groups. So it was a valid concern, but maybe we could have dealt with it differently. I mean, uh, What about the red line? Oh, the red line. <laughs> because, again, it could have been another opportunity to say, to show what, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I know we're fixated on the red line, but I tell you, we, we abandoned the Syrian people long before the red line. And, and I tell you, that red line was breached as early as December 2012, and we did nothing. We knew he was starting to use chemical weapons on a small scale, and we did nothing. Even the French and the Brits had evidence, and they presented it at the UN in uh, April of 2013, and we did nothing. <laughs> so, yes, I know we focused on that incident because it's it's the most horrific and and and, and you know that led to the to the to the you know greatest uh, loss of life. But people were dying, you know, from bombs, from star starvation. There were other ways in which this regime was was killing people. No, I'm fully in agreement with you. I'm just saying that um, it could have been another opportunity to somehow you know, salvage. But, but I want to know if you agree with the theory that it was the negotiations with Iran and the 
Obama administration worried because of the Iran connection with Syria that the uh, that they would that they were going to antagonize the Iranians that they would if we bombed you know the, the airstrips or did anything to intervene with is that a factor in your view yeah. on the part of the Obama administration other than also not wanting to get involved. He said it publicly. I mean, I have to say, any, I don't have to validate anything. I mean, the President Obama said it publicly. He said, I'm not going to go in there and, and face Iran and Russia and Hezbollah who are, who are determined to save the regime. I mean, he said it. You know, may I ask another question? This is not, not the same idea. So. But anyway, the question has to do with this. You're thought that there could have been a safe zone, is that would us, would in, in world politics, uh, that have required the UN to have decreed a no-fly zone that we could have enforced? We, we have an air base just right. north of that area. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have an air base. But in Tur you said Turkey would have been in favor of it. But could have been something worked through the UN, or would the Russians have vetoed something? I don't think the American public would have allowed us to get participate in a no-fly zone in that area of Syria unless the UN backed it. Just the politics of it, both the world politics and national politics. I think totally the American public would have allowed it. If we explained it to the American public the right way and said, you know, we're doing this, it's limited, we're preventing people from actually becoming refugees and we, uh, you know, we want to prevent people from being killed by these barrel bombs, by these, uh, uh, you know, Russian-made jets that were raining death on people day and night. I think an argument could have been ma made with or without UN support. Sorry, Hamdi, please. I, I actually, uh, I'm Syrian. Don't we don't ask questions, we only make statements. So <laughs> pretend I'm asking a question. Sure, okay. <laughs> okay, I'll take and it. And, I'll I'll be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and Paul knows that too, because I talk a lot. Uh, you know, on, I'm going to take you back to 9 11. My wife was in New York. I was having coffee preparing for court. And obviously, the events of that day everybody's familiar with. And I called my father, I called my wife, couldn't reach my wife. Has that changed our policy from having a foreign policy to only having a counter-terror policy? Is that the reason that you think? You, you seem to not know the reason, but I'm suggesting it to you. Is that the reason that we seem unable? I'm sorry, is that to me? To you. Oh, no. sorry, sorry. Is that the reason that we're I thought unable? you said you wanted to make a statement. It is a statement. <laughs> <laughs> it was a uh, something <laughs> question. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How many get no respect? <laughs> Sorry, Hamdi. I thought you were going to make a statement. So. Uh, it is, it is, but I'm not done. It's going to end with the question. Okay, please. So, I mean, you seem to wonder why we can't seem to get things together to actually have a policy that it seems whimsical, etc. And I, I'm wondering, is that? Do you think that that might be the cause that we only have a counter-terror policy in place of a foreign policy? Yeah, uh, I think maybe others in the room might be better equipped to answer that. Please. You are today. <laughs> You're stuck with it. Okay, so Hamdi, uh, the question is... Well, I mean, the military only works off of missions. Oh, nine, nine. And we, we have a mission to defeat counter-terrorism. We've reorganized the yeah, whole absolutely. government 
so that we don't have the mistakes that led us to 9 11. <coughs> right, right. Now it's all reorganized and in place, and FBI speaks to right, 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 right. the DOD and the DOS. So. Except now we only have a mission to yeah. defeat terrorists. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to th thank you very much, Hamdi, for that I mean, <laughs> excellent uh, intervention. So, um, Absolutely. I mean, it goes back to what I what I said. We're not looking at this as a. I mean, yes, the goal, the ultimate goal, is to keep America safe, right? To not have another 9/11, right? So we all share that goal. But the way we're going about it now is actually the wrong way because we're not looking at the problem as this bigger problem that's interconnected, that has deep roots, and that Iraq is connected to Syria, to Lebanon, to Egypt, and and that these failed states and uh, these tyrannical states are actually um, the root cause of this extremism, this uh, disillusion, this misery that drives people to either flee the region and seek refuge elsewhere or join these groups. I mean, we, we are not, and we need almost to like reconfigure our whole approach, our whole strategy now, 20 years later almost, you know, after 9-11, in terms of like saying, okay, now time for a complete rethink of all of this and, and how do we go about it and what tools do we have and uh, is it going out there and, and making statements or is it doing other things? So this requires really putting all of our minds together and saying, you know, there is, the time has come for, for almost a rethink of the whole strategy here. Of course, uh, with the goal being to keep, the, the primary goal being to keep America safe and to prevent, you know, that, that those terrorists, those horrific terrorist attacks from ever happening here again. So I, I, I agree with you, but I think the problem is we are, we are so mired in so many other problems right now. I mean, we're internally, you know, we have all these issues here and we are polarized like never before. So we're, there's almost no room to think about these things. And the same applies to Europe. I mean, they're also uh, overwhelmed with their own issues and their own problems and be it Brexit, be it the future of the European Union, be it you know all these populist governments that are coming to power and so it's it's everywhere almost. Can I, can I ask a follow-up question? So if you think that that is the reason that we partnered with the YPG, I mean our policy is a counter-terror policy. Yeah. So we partnered with YPG to defeat ISIS Without uh, countering Iran's uh, strategy, supposedly, or hopefully, we don't. I don't, I don't think we, we do. have. <laughs> we have an anti-Al Qaeda strategy, but then we partnered with someone that we designated a terrorist group, PKK. It's Syria affiliate to YPG to defeat terrorism. So we we partnered with terrorists to defeat terrorists. Sure. I mean, again, that goes back to what I just said. I mean, it, it is just looking at that, sort of looking at the problem piecemeal and saying, we just, we just only care about defeating ISIS because it did all these horrible things um, to our people, to journalists, to, uh, you know, uh, it inspired all these attacks in Europe. So we're just going to go after it because it's a threat to us and, and to our way of life. And, and we look and we scan sort of Syria and we look and who is the we come to the conclusion that the, the most reliable partner is uh, the YPG because we've had, we had a similar experience in Iraq with the Peshmerga. So we just like almost copy paste and we say like, who, who, who is the equivalent of the Peshmerga here in Syria? And we deal with that. 
with them to defeat uh, uh, ISIS. on the National Security Council and the meeting tomorrow is on Syria and you gave the president the advice you gave us to make that statement and he then looked at you and said then what? What would you say? Yeah, I mean I would go back to the things I listed in, uh, in the solution to say that Mr. President you have to look at this as one big interconnected problem and you have to look at the you know the regime being at the heart of this problem and uh, no, I mean what would he do the next day oh uh, do okay. what, what would you say the president should do do this mr. president I would say think about that he's going to do something uh, uh, say you're fired I would say articulate an, uh, articulate a new policy articulate a new policy that makes sense first step would be to, to come up with that. And right now we don't have that. We, we are totally confused. We are all over the place. So step one, sit down and write like what are our goals and how do we achieve these goals and come up with like uh, a strategy that, that's, that's coherent. Right now we're not coherent. All right. Okay. We've reached <laughs>